I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the fourth and final episode of The Lives of Stonehenge, a short podcast series from the London Review of Books with me, Rosemary Hill. In this series, which we're finishing appropriately at midsummer, we've been looking at what people have thought about Stonehenge over the past few hundred years and why it's mattered so much in the story of Britain. And our characters so far have included architects Inigo Jones and John Wood, two pioneering antiquaries, John Aubrey and William Stukeley, and the Romantics, Wordsworth and Blake, all of whom have reshaped Stonehenge in different ways in our collective imagination. But still, still, we have very few answers about what Stonehenge is or was and how it got there. You might even conclude that doesn't matter very much, but as we move now on into the 20th century and up to the present day, we'll see that for lots of people, including but by no means restrained to archaeologists, this question has mattered very much indeed. It has mattered to the point where Stonehenge has seen physical violence, the intervention of the police, the erection of razor wire. So in this concluding part, we think about the people who over the past century have challenged the established views and the authorities, not only on the point of what Stonehenge was in the past, but what it is, what it can be in the future, and most importantly, who it can actually belong to. And joining me for this final leg across Salisbury Plain, I'm delighted to say, is the folklorist Jeremy Hart, author of many books, most recently Cloven Country, The Devil and the English Landscape, whose author's bio says that he lives alone in a dark house full of shadows. Well, thank you for coming out, Jeremy. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, a folklorist now and a veteran of the Earth Mysteries movement, that group of people who were concerned to construct an, an intellectually credible argument, which saw the sites of our landscape not merely as dead monuments, but as living presences. Well, in the period that we're talking about, of course, this is when Stonehenge actually became public property because despite intensive lobbying from people including Charles Dickens and John Ruskin, there had been no capacity to take ancient monuments into the public realm until 1913 when Stonehenge was scheduled under the Ancient Monuments Act, but it was still private property. And in 1916, it was sold at an auction sale in Salisbury to a Mr Chubb, who is said to have bought it for his wife. And in 1918, he did the decent thing and handed it over to the public in exchange for a knighthood. And that really is when our period starts, and it's also when all the really serious fighting starts, because who is the public? It was given to the public and it was given to the nation. They were convinced that the two things were one and the same. It was given to the people and as the 20th century gradually unravelled, they began to realise that these things meant different things to different people. Well, the public is a very hydra-headed thing. And 1926, so less than 10 years after it had become public property, was the first storming of Stonehenge by the Druids at midsummer. Because the Druids had situated themselves 
as the opponents to a story that the archaeologists were telling. And the archaeologists have been doing some quiet footwork behind the scenes and were no longer eccentric interferers with a gentleman's right of private property. They were the servants of the state. And the people who turned up, who were really the public, only they were cunningly disguised as a load of people enjoying the solstice, were engaging in activities involving motor cars and American music, neither of them really conducive to the then image of the nation. No, and it's a very... um, This kind of antipathy between the archaeologists who have one story to tell and everybody else who has a dozen stories to tell, is really the story of the 20s. I mean, as we've seen in these podcasts, the story of the history of Stonehenge, as distinct from the prehistory, is a history of rows and arguments. But the first excavations, because Sir Edmund Antrobus, who owned Stonehenge before it became public property, had actually kept the archaeologists out and had stopped them from digging. But, of course, as soon as they got back, they were itching to dig. And as soon as they got in, they started digging. And not making a terribly good job of it, which disturbed the narrative later on. In some ways, what happened in the 20th century was a failure of crisis in archaeologists as authority figures. Um, and that was partly occasioned by, you know, the two main 20th century um, campaigns of excavation, uh, which culminated, of course, in Atkinson's failure to publish um, and his retreating to becoming a increasingly marginalised figure. Well, I think we have to say who Richard Atkinson was. He was the first television archaeologist, wasn't he? He he was, Richard Atkinson, the author of what, for you know, most of the 20th century, was the paperback history of Stonehenge and the sitter on the actual archaeology, which in the end, after his death, had to be unravelled by a glorious trio with three women of Wessex who published um, the version that we read nowadays. But the critical thing is that while he was involved in looking good for camera, he was also perpetuating a model, essentially a colonial model, um, in which Western barbarians were illuminated uh, by light coming from the east. And you just had to find the authority figure. Once you found the authority figure, history was resolved and prehistory could then seamlessly elide into the story that he was familiar with of people bringing civilization to a barbaric island. I mean, the extraordinary thing about um, Atkinson was that, of course, he looked right for television and archaeology and he was in that sort of tradition in which people like Kenneth Clark would later follow, you know, um, a very well-educated and posh chap, smoking a pipe in his case and striding about on Silbury Hill. But um, we must say that archaeologists ever since, sometimes you think they don't do anything without a full camera crew. But his appeal was that while he was supposedly this very, um, well, he was very well-educated man, but the story of the Mycenaean king buried in Silbury Hill, he just made, they had no evidence for that at all. He was just a natural for the dominating story, which in his case involved wisdom from the East turning up in the form of Mycenaeans, um, you know, the figures that carved that interesting-looking dagger on one of the trilithons, and then having a leader who did all this wonderful work and who was then buried in the leader-sized Silbury Hill. You know, the two things that drove pre-war archaeology were a sense of radiating civilization uh, coming from better places in a colonial style. Well, that, of course, is the key that Exorient looks, that if this thing was sophisticated, and this in a way takes us all the way back to Inigo Jones and saying it was done by the Romans, if this thing is sophisticated, then it must have come from somewhere else. 
because otherwise, if these barbarians could do this very sophisticated thing, this really mucks up the narrative which of scientific progress, or what I in my part of the academic forest would call the Whig version of history, that every day in every way we all get better and better and more and more clever. And the Druids didn't like this because they had pioneered the reverse story in which there had been an ancient wisdom which was understood. And then there had been a series of crises, beginning with the Romans and making its way all the way down to the Ministry of Works, in which the wisdom was misunderstood and neglected. And finally, they were being excluded from their own place. And that sense of ownership, the sense that the stones are ours, would ripple out um, from the initial Druid orders to a much, much wider circle of people as the 20th century became more democratic. And, of course, the Druids... I mean, on the one hand, the Ministry of Works could say, quite rightly, that the Druids of the Iron Age, the people Caesar talked about, didn't build Stonehenge. But it was kind of interesting how it got under the skin of the Ministry of Works that they bothered to say in the guidebook not only that it wasn't built by the Druids, but, um, you know, don't think about the Druids when you're looking at it. It was definitely a case of you must not hold certain beliefs. That in itself became, of course, a, a cause of great um, annoyance and anxiety. And then the next... Because, I mean, Atkinson's vision of the king buried in Silbury Hill was no, had no more behind it than Geoffrey of Monmouth's vision of Arthur. All of these things perpetuated stories about power. The difference in the 20th century is that what had previously been a, a literal question of ownership, Antrobus owned it and there was an end to it, suddenly became a moral question. And at the same time, what had been a niche market for saying, oh, well, you know, factually, my story is right became meshed in with the question of, is my story morally right? Am I asserting things about the past that are giving me the authority to exclude people and exclude beliefs in the present? And when, after a kind of underground period in the Second World War, the beliefs of the 20s and 30s flourished once again in the Earth Mysteries movement, it was specifically a movement of epistemic resistance. It was engaged in actually going out and believing things. The craziness was occasionally elided over. But the critical thing is these were things that liberated the imagination from the constraints in which the sterile archaeology of those years had placed it. Sterility was very much complained about, and not only by the Druids, you get John Piper and other artists, but particularly John Piper, because it sort of comes back, the whole artistic interest in Stonehenge comes back in the 20th century. Henry Moore saw it by moonlight and sort of understood something about the possibility of landscape and sculpture. And, um, yeah, Piper complains that you're supposed to leave your imagination in the car park with your car and you think at your own risk there. And the professional triumph of archaeology had been founded exactly on that, that as opposed to the historically-minded antiquarianism of their predecessors, which simply said, you know, they thought they knew the historical narrative and slotted the facts into it. They were perpetuating a fact-only version. Uh, and this is what um, Christopher Hawkes, the husband of Jaquetta Hawkes, who, who said, you know, every age has a Stonehenge that it believes and deserves, very firmly said that, you know, all we could certainly know about was the one thing after another facts of, of stratigraphy and of typology. We couldn't know what people thought or believed. Uh, it was only with the rise of a more reflective archaeology that people actually realised that, you know, you have to believe something about the past to make any sense of the things that are coming down from it. 
But then you also have to keep the reins on your imagination. And of course, the, the real kind of crisis in archaeology came with radiocarbon dating, when they had to move the whole thing. I mean, it fascinates me as an historian because you're always, if you're doing what I'm doing, you're thinking, was it 1826 or was it 1827? Archaeology, they just moved the whole thing back 3,000 years. Um, and as Mike Pitt said, it's as if you took the most sophisticated late Gothic cathedral and plonked it back in the Dark Ages. Nothing, nothing makes sense anymore. And that kind of fracture in the fact-only view of Stonehenge opened up this gap through which the Earth Mysteries movement and the Druids and everybody else piled in. And I think we should, before we just go on about the Earth Mysteries movement, I think we might talk a bit about John Michel, who was really the pioneer of Earth Mysteries, who wrote The View over Atlantis. And yes, you know, but both of us had experience of, of John's distinct character. Um, I think his prose flows beautifully from a view of the world. In some respects, Megalithomania, the book that he, he brought Stonehenge into, is, is one of the um, undercover books. You, you, you can read it as a historian uh, of thought about Megaliths. Um, but when you actually look at it carefully, you realise that it's a subversive book. It is intended to say nobody can ever have any certainty about these things. And the Michelian view was always, well, dearie me, apart from platonic geography, of which you know, he was a great enthusiast, we can't be certain about anything, so why don't we believe the things that give us a nicer view of life and people? Well, yes, John was this extraordinary... Com we both knew him a little, and he was this extraordinary combination of the most subversive and also the most establishment kind of old Etonian, Cambridge-educated... Um, it was elegant, elegant, always very elegant, good-looking gentleman. But he, again, his resistance was to this narrative of progress and linear development of civilizations. To the extent that he was an anti-Darwinian. Um, he wanted to have the original perfect model from which, essentially, civilization was a degradation. At the same time, one of his more archaeologically plausible models and it's been adopted by a lot of people who haven't I think given it credit this does tend to happen with things pioneered by the unorthodox in the first place was that he saw the migrant the hunter-gatherer the traveler as the primary state of interaction with the landscape and of course that was confirmed when they found the Mesolithic postal setting at Stonehenge yes. of which the geometrically perfect orderly structure is an attempt by and a generation already losing the vision to perpetuate the ideal scheme on Earth. And it was the travellers who became the force for alternative culture at Stonehenge. And John believed very much in this, um, what he called a platonic cycle of history, so that if things go round, as he said, they start off as lunacy, and then they become heresy, and then they become orthodoxy. And I'm just going to read The View Over Atlantis, um, which was really the, sort of the founding text of the Earth Mysteries movement. And I'm just going to read this little bit from the end because it illustrates how something which certainly when it was published was regarded as lunacy. Um, his conclusion, the Earth is slowly dying of poison, a process whose continuation is inevitably associated with many of the fundamental assumptions of the modern technological civilization. The radical alterations to the social structure necessary to avert the approaching crisis may lie beyond reach of achievement. Well, that doesn't really sound anything other than orthodox now. So, I mean, it's a wonderful demonstration. 
he, he didn't like development. He didn't like democracy either. It's an interesting contrast to navigate your way between. He was a very complicated figure. Um, though we should also say we're recording this at um, midsummer, and just as Glastonbury is starting, and Glastonbury has a pyramid stage because of John Michel um, and his views of astroarchaeology. The connection between Glastonbury and Stonehenge was one of John's key points. Um, feeding into, um, if you like, a late Earth Mysteries narrative in which there were certain significant points. Um, and, and essentially your, your understanding of the, the, the chakras, as many people said, the energy centres. This is the, the wing that is interested in energies and which expresses the concept of energy through, um, in some ways, you know, a 17th century view, that it's not quite physical and it's not uh, quite, quite abstract either. Going back to the view that um, when we talked about Inigo Jones, how... In order to be a good architect, you had to be an astronomer, but also an astrologer. And one of the things that happened with the breakdown of the, the great sort of rift in the archaeological orthodoxy, when everyone came piling in, was Alfred Watkins and the old straight track, the reawakening of interest in ley lines, um, the excavations at Glastonbury, the rediscovery of the theory of psychic energy linking primal sites. And Watkins himself resisted the trend. I mean, he, he tried to keep the old straight track club towards what was essentially a, a, a materialist but romantic history in which tracks had been laid out so that people could get from somewhere to somewhere else. But what is interesting was the fact that he belonged to the wing that lost in the archaeological battles of the 20s and the archaeological battles, not, not the mystic ones, which was about landscape archaeology. Uh, he, had, he had total indifference to stratigraphy. Uh, you know, his famous comment was, well, they think they can understand a barrow as a child understands a drum by cutting it open to see what's in it. He, he people, people like Hadrian Allcroft, who actually understood the lie of the land, uh, were pushed out of the way because they weren't scientific enough. There was this extraordinary, as I say, this extraordinary influx, and there was a change, just to come back to the Druids, which one always does, this extraordinary change from what the Druids had been mostly in the 19th century, in the Edwardian Druids, who were more like sort of Masonic societies. I mean, they liked drinking toasts and rewarding each other medals and having big dinners and things. And then suddenly the whole the Druids kind of exploded and you got, they became very political. The, the new orders that we should perhaps mention are God, Sod and Obod, the Glastonbury Order of Druids, the, the Secular Order of Druids, um, who declared that Stonehenge belongs to the future, which of course is a nightmare in legal terms, and the Order of Bards, Ovates and Druids. And then the other figure, happily still with us, who we should talk about dominating the debate in the 20th century is um, King Arthur Pendragon and his loyal Arthurian warband. And um, King Arthur, Arthur Pendragon, as he is now officially known, but who started his life as John Rothwell, but um, changed his name legally and led the campaign for free access to Stonehenge through some very troubled times. And actually, rather like John Michel, has um, a quite orthodox background, started off in the army, worked as a motorbike messenger and was a biker, and now leads his loyal Arthurian war band and conducts hand fastings at Stonehenge from time to time, has been, um, well, can you call him countercultural or is he really just 
the representative of a certain kind of culture that's found a focus around Stonehenge? I think definitely countercultural. Okay, all right. Yeah. We'll go with countercultural. Mm. But he um, presents always as King Arthur when he's been in prison, which is he gets arrested quite a lot. If not allowed to wear his robes in prison, he prefers to wear nothing and go into solitary confinement. So this isn't somebody who's just playing about. And used the narratives of myth in order to take practical action. Enormously practical man, a background in the British Army obviously kind of pays off there. Um, but one which enabled him, whereas we've talked about epistemic resistance, about telling stories which enable people to turn round to authority and go, no, you shall not cover the whole sky with your interpretation. Here you've got a man who simply by standing outside um, the now no longer existing appalling visitor centre saying, don't pay, go away, has been able to some extent to redeem Stonehenge for the people and, and the difference between the people and the public, I think, is that the public turn up one at a time uh, and, and pay their, their fee and are ferried in little cars if they can't be bothered to walk the 1.7 miles. The people turn up as a community for a festival with a sense of internal order and bonding, uh, an internal order that may not be visible to the Wiltshire Constabulary, but which nevertheless existed and which has now actually been accepted by co-opting it to some extent, but act as a politically unified community rather than a disparate bunch of consumers. And, of course, neither of those two bodies equals the nation. No, and I think we should come on to, as I say, we're recording this in midsummer, and there's been, as is now the custom, huge gathering down at Stonehenge for the solstice. And if you look on the English Heritage website, if you're thinking of going before the solstice, there's lots of, you know, do's and don'ts and how to get there. And a very polite notice saying, reminding you that the stones are sacred to many people, which is an acknowledgement of the neo-pagan um, community there, and to respect them. So it takes a bit of an effort of the imagination to remember that during the 1980s, people who wanted to go to the solstice were kept out with razor wire. And there were police helicopters overhead and the people who lived in Amesbury, which is the nearest village, had to carry ID in order to get into their own homes. Yes. So there was this extraordinarily troubled period. Well, as Ernest Renan said, you know, a nation is a process of forgetting as well as remembering. Um, many things have, have been forgotten in order to produce the um, present enlightened and, and amiable consensus. Uh, in some respects, you know, the beanfield is the Tiananmen Square of Wiltshire. <laughs> well, steady on. But just, just tell people what the Battle of the Beanfield was. <laughs> the, the Battle of the Beanfield, 1985, the, the, you know, the convoy, which is essentially um, the New Age travellers, unified by the fact that there was a round of festivals to which people went. Um, and that was where, you know, you had your, your major life events, you had your identity forming. It was exactly as the archaeologists are now constructing the Neolithic. You had a disparate population, semi-nomadic, turning up and unifying themselves by doing things at important central places. And the Stonehenge Free Festival, which had been going for a while, we should point out, had gone on very peacefully. And the the one before the Battle of the Beanfield, it had been a very hot summer. Um, the police had used their headlights to light up the stones and the fire brigade sprayed everyone with water to keep them cool. And it had been a completely, there'd been no trouble at all. Yes, there, there, there were also um, underlying um, 
differences of view between the local constabulary and the special patrol group, who, of course, had been piloted by the then government in order to suppress other things that were not in, in line with how the nation was supposed to be. So trafficking down on travellers, always a popular government activity, um, led to a determination there would be no Stonehenge Festival. A large number of people were heading for the festival, a large number of people had stopped in the beanfield, as it's known, and the... Um, the police in full riot gear went in to evict people and evicted them with a considerable show of violence. They also, interestingly, warned the press not to follow, not, not to go. They more or less said, this is going to be very rough, don't come. But the person who was mandated by the local Tory party to go and keep an eye on things um, was the Earl of Cardigan. And to the astonishment, I think, of many of his fellow Conservatives, when the people from the Beanfield who'd been arrested, and a lot of them were arrested, were all held up in, in magistrate's court, he gave evidence against the police and said that they'd been brutal. Yes, um, an, an English gentleman. And proof, if you like, that um, a lot of what we're talking about here is narratives of order and hegemony, that um, certain stories are put about, about Stonehenge, which justify ownership in, in the most limited sense. But power is, is split up. And I, I remember Barbara Bender, the archaeologist, and of course a, you know, a, ra a radical archaeologist, producing a, a, a firebrand article and in fact a firebrand travelling exhibition, uh, which on more than one occasion got taken down because the worthy people of whichever town it was going to turn up to couldn't stand her saying positive things about, you know, scruffy people who, you know, lived in Benders. And the irony, of course, is that the Earl then took what remained of the convoy off onto his own land. So you've got Stonehenge now belongs to the public, but the private aristocratic landowner took them in and refused the police access. Um, so, the, again, a huge reversal of what people thought they were fighting for or hoping for when it became public. And it was also... The Battle of the Beanfield was also one aspect of that. It coincided, of course, with the foundation of English heritage. English heritage was established in 1984. As a wing of the then Thatcher policy, that not, nothing had any value unless you were paying for it. So why on earth were we sort of having all these monuments dotted around the countryside? And then there was also the Public Order Act, which was an attempt, we're seeing a similar attempt now, to, um, because you know, thinking of how very violent the 80s were, or grief. There was a lot of um, fighting and there was a lot of rather heavy-handed attempts at legislation. And the irony is that um, exactly because of, of the resistance um, during the miners' strike, the first um, cracks in, 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 in the um, views projected by John Michel, um, the, the dream of a few over Atlantis, were beginning to appear. I mean, John had followed it up by 12 tribe nations, which said that, you know, every worthwhile country in the idealised platonic past was divided up into 12 tribes under a philosopher king who bore a strong relationship to you-know-who. <laughs> um, and um, at this point, the Earth Mysteries movement itself had um, spread out and had ceased to become a kind of centralised London thing and, and had spawned a, a number of regional magazines, regional groupings, um, including, which is still going, Northern Earth. Good Northern Marxists to a man. Uh, they responded to John's 12 tribe nations by going, we've read our Gramsci. You're, you're just attempting to project stories which, you know, enable a small elite to maintain power over everybody else by telling them how the world is. We'll decide how the world is. Well, if there's one thing that can be said for the um, 
post-Victorian Druids and the loyal Arthurian warband and so on. I mean, it is a history of division and division and division. Um, everybody ends up practically in their own little group. So yeah, the Druidic and pagan community has multiplied and divided more often than amoebae. But I think we should say that Arthur and the loyal Arthurian warband were actually practically very effective. Very much so. And I think one reason is that Arthur is a king who does not necessarily take order seriously, at least not his own order. Um, that is what has enabled him, you know, to, to lead from the front. It is done purely on charisma and zero gurumanship um, and also a willingness to sacrifice himself. And also a great sense of humour when under legislation they weren't allowed to have a procession near Stonehenge. Um, so they kept getting arrested um, for having a procession near Stonehenge. And then one year they said that it wasn't a procession, it was a picnic. So they arrested Arthur for possession of an offensive weapon, which was Excalibur, which he bought. We think it's the sword that was used in the John Borman film Excalibur. But whether it is or whether it isn't... Um, it Re reality has a tendency to go very hazy wherever King Arthur is concerned. It does. Except, and of course, the wonderful thing is because that is his name, when at one stage the, he and the warband just got themselves arrested as often as possible in order to just jam up the magistrate's courts. It was, when the law is as silly as that, it's very easy to get arrested. So they did it over and over again. But when he's in court, he has, of course, to be addressed by his name, which is King Arthur Pendragon. And Ronald Hutton spoke in court. Um, on oh, behalf he? of oh yes yes good I'm not surprised uh, yes yes uh, again perhaps we should introduce Dr Hutton Doyen of, of pagan studies and a great many other things as well um, but but a man who I think pioneered um, that sense of multivocality which which has now rippled through to English heritage so again from what was originally you know, quite a, a marginal position, a historian first of ancient paganism and, and then the, the bead, essentially, of Wicca, um, the man who actually wrote down the story of how England's only contribution to world religions came into existence. Yes, it is. Just say a bit more about Wicca, because it is the only world religion to be started in England. Yes, so a, a man who is essentially the bead of Wicca, who it was the historian that took witchcraft as... We, we know it as a religion, um, as it emerged from, from the darkness of a small hut in Hertfordshire in the late 1930s. Um, and we were able, through a strange combination of, again, reality parting before belief, like the Red Sea before the Israelites, um, and also a deeply English romantic perception of nature and landscape and again of the moral value of the past an affirmation that there were things in the past which should be normative for the present and that we are declining from wisdom not rising from barbarism all of that was put together um, and he achieved the I think probably unique human feat of writing about a very large number of Wiccans without any of them disliking him at the end of the process that is very 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 unusual. Um, and we also, because we've been, I think, possibly slightly um, hard on the archaeologists, we ought to point out that the Stonehenge too, who were the people who in the end got the criminal justice law amended in such a way that English heritage had to let people in for the solstice, um, which they now do with great enthusiasm, of course, um, were archaeologists, because there was the, the Criminal Justice Act forbade what they called trespassery assembly. And this was a very 
subjective thing, but basically if it was more than one person doing something that's, that, that the authorities didn't like, you could be arrested. And the, um, the Stonehenge too took this, having been arrested for trespass reassembly, took this all the way to, then it was the House of Lords, which was the ultimate appeal court. Um, and Derry Irving just said, well, this law means that, you know, you've just two friends meeting in the street. Whenever two or more are gathered against my name. Exactly. Um, could be arrested. And so after that, um, English heritage more or less. I mean, in 1989, there was a four-mile exclusion zone around Stonehenge at the Solstice. I mean, it's incredible. What what was happening, I, I think, and you, you can read this intellectually, you can read this socially. I mean, in some respects, archaeologists having achieved a status, and you, you've also got to remember that ticking along in the archaeological framework at the same time were things like the, the present legislation which mandates archaeological excavation on threatened sites. Um, so... Academically, and to some extent functionally, archaeologists have a job. Um, at a time when they were precarious, they like to ally themselves with imaginary figures of power. Once they've actually got their feet under somebody else's table, uh, a certain flirtation with dissidents becomes possible. But also intellectually, um, emerging from a period in which, you know, the only goal of archaeology was to take lots of pottery and divide it into ever, you know, smaller and smaller sub-traditions of traditions. Once theory was reintroduced, um, and, you know, Excalibur is a typical example. Excalibur is a sword which is not used for fighting people. Suddenly we look at all those Bronze Age swords in barrows and kind of go, well, we kept on assuming that they were used for cutting people up because we had a mono theory of swords. Here's a counterexample. We need to go back and actually think about the, um, the superstructure of interpretation that we've been cheerfully slapping on top of the firm archaeological substructure um, of stratigraphy and typology. So introduce theory, you will inevitably, you know, in a Western context, introduce a left-wing radicalism because that's where social theory has come from. Introduce that and the next thing you know, you're in, uh, you know, Devise's Crown Court. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, though eventually Arthur has been quite, uh, was quite instrumental in, again, quite sort of, humorously but insisting that there should be talks and insisting that they should be held at a round table um, and the bureaucracy of English heritage was I think slightly taken aback by all that but you know it, it, it did work um, and so English heritage has had to let people in but what was also going on which was um, freaking the older generation of archaeologists out, and we've slightly bypassed this, is astroarchaeology. The whole question of which again was a challenge to the idea that the people who built this thing, if they weren't Romans or Mycenaeans, if they were our ancestors, they must have been barbaric and idiots. Um, so the idea that there were sophisticated solar and lunar alignments... Suddenly they turned out to be much cleverer than everybody had anticipated. And when this rippled out, it was definitely a kind of, you know, right hook and a left jab, um, because the... Um, recalibration of radiocarbon dating and the initial astroarchaeological theories um, hit the press stand simultaneously. People were given a double you know, dose of realising the archaeologists had got it completely wrong. Well, also, of course, it made, because it coincided, as it happened, with um, the moon landings. People were very interested in space. 
Um, there was also a big UFO thing going on on Salisbury Plain with the Warminster thing, which not really, nobody's ever worked out whether that was a, was a thing um, or just a thing. Um, it, 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 it was Arthur Shuttlewood. Oh, was it? Oh, thank you. I didn't know. <laughs> back, back, back to the um, the influence of personal charisma. Had, had there been no Arthur, there would have been uh, only a very circumscribed local thing. <laughs> so the great thing about leaving aside the Warminster thing for the moment, um, the great thing about the astroarchaeology was that it made Stonehenge exciting, also very topical. And it made it modern. And it made it modern. I mean, exactly. you know, um, Gerald Hawkins, who, who wrote the, the other paperback that everybody who was interested in Stonehenge had in those days, um, had been interested in a tradition going going all the way back to the 18th century that this was in some respects a um, an astronomical monument and decided to put it to the test so drawing lines from every point of the monument to every other point that he could think of fed them into the IBM computer um, and out at the end spilled a load of data probably on ticker tape which showed that yes there were significant alignments well significant alignments to solar positions are not difficult to work out I mean you can virtually do, do that by eye if you know your landscapes but what he was finding was two significant elements. One, the fact that there was a capacity to predict lunar eclipses. Um, and that is something pretty sophisticated. But also, as the web of research widened, this is the time as well when Alexander Tom was doing his work on surveying stone circles. He left Stonehenge until the very last. But working with minor sites, um, he had begun by observing um, solar alignments and had then moved on to highly specific observations of the way the moon behaves, which enabled you again to predetermine when an eclipse might happen. So suddenly we were moving out of the realm of straightforward, uh, we all get together once a year and watch the sunrise, into elite knowledge which could only be passed down with either, as Tom says, the aid of writing or some kind of mnemonic poetry, which enable people precisely to observe detailed figures that would enable them to make predictions about the movements of the heavens. You know, um, Gerald Hawkins and, and Stonehenge decoded, um, thrown together quite rapidly. Uh, but, but, of course, the, um, the selling point was that he put the data of um, every line that he could draw, matching up two points on the monument, and fed it through an IBM. Yes, the computer, the machine, as he refers Un to Unkindly it. defined, I think, later by Christopher Chippendale. You know, in fact, the only thing Stonehenge and IBM have in common is they're both ancient monuments. Yes, well, that was all very smart afterwards, wasn't it? But at the time, it was amazing. And Glyn Daniel, who was the editor of Antiquity, um, who was a real kind of old school... Di um, well, I nearly said dinosaur, but anyway, um, old school archaeologist... Uh, was furious. So he commissioned the um, astronomer Fred Hoyle to write an article in Antiquity which was supposed to debunk this whole lunar-solar alignment theory. And then Hoyle you know, did his sums and um, whatever astronomers do and calculated the azimuths and came back with a piece saying, well, broadly, I think it's true. You know, it does all line up like that and you can't get the same alignments at Avebury. So it's not just that I'm bringing my own expectations to it. So, of course, Daniel was furious, but he'd commissioned the article and Hoyle was very eminent. If and and da Daniel had a particular situation as the editor of Antiquity. Yeah. Um, so, so that he was a flagship bearer uh, for a particular archaeological tradition. Um, but again... 
compared to what we, we now accept in terms of pluralism, what horrified people, I think, then was the fact they were going to have to go off and learn all of this stuff from scratch. Well, some, I can't remember which of the archaeologists it was, kind of almost burst into tears and says, well, you have to understand that you know, suddenly we're faced with all this algebra and it's, it's very upsetting. Yes, um, it, 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 was, it, it was almost a, a rehearsal for the arrival of theory that they had to stop, you know, they, they had to move out of the, the particular train tracks that they were working on. Um, you know, in a sense, it was a shake-up analogous to what had been proposed by the mystics, um, and yet it came in a scientific guise, so it hit from both sides on that. Um, what is interesting is that as increasingly bilingual people, you know, emerged who knew both styles... Some of the radical potential of, of um, well, as, as um, astroarchaeology became archaeoastronomy, um, dissipated because on a global framework where, where you've got um, cultures like the Mesoamericans, where you've got a written tradition backing up what they were doing, alas, uh, it was gloriously original. Before we could read the Mayan script, it was very much like, you know, the imagined Neolithic, a landscape of sages watching the heavens. And as soon as we could read it, it turned out to be kings glorifying themselves, same old, same old. <laughs> so disappointing. I think um, I, we also need to talk about, because th at the moment, as I say, English heritage welcomes everybody into the circle at the winter and summer solstice. There was a little bit of a trou of trouble during lockdown about whether people were allowed in or not, and a few people did go in. Um, but it wasn't really, you know, been, the days of those battles are, we hope, over. The current battle, of course, between the paying public and the non-paying public is all to do with the roads. Because the eighth, the stone, when Stonehenge was auctioned off, it ended up on this funny triangle of land between two roads, the A303 and the A344. The A344, which went right by the heel stone, has been grassed over. That's a very happy story. The A303 continues to um, spoil the view is one description. Cause tra Stonehenge causes traffic jams is another view. Um, another view is that it enables people to see Stonehenge without paying, which is very annoying for Horror. English. Horror, horror, horror. People are just seeing it from their cars. Um, and the plans to dig a tunnel continue to, um, well, stagnate. It's a tragedy of landscape archaeology because, of course, the reason why two roads go past Stonehenge in the first place is that when you could freeze to death on Salisbury Plain, heading for the nearest monument visible from any distance whatsoever made a good strategy. At least you knew you were heading in roughly the right direction. That's why we have these two roads. And in a local perception, I, I, I think the fact that, um, you know, it's a monument and you can drive past it has actually been quite loved. Yes. So you're you're dealing again with disparate communities, but you're also dealing with the fact that that roads to you know to take people around the country are a public good, um, but they contravene what different groups of people might want. Well, the question of what you do with it, because one of the big local arguments is that it's constantly, especially all through the summer, it's jammed with people trying to go on holiday. My own hope is that of all the orthodoxies that have been challenged at Stonehenge, the orthodoxy of the right to drive wherever you want, whenever you want, more and more and more and faster and faster and faster may also be challenged. But the current thinking, well, I mean, there have been... Um, 
millions and millions of pounds spent on inquiries. And um, in 2008, when my book came out, already 25 million had been spent and they had done nothing. Um, the present state of play, if you look on the website, is that um, the Highways Agency has no announcement to make. Um, those... Is that not how government works? Well, we, uh, we, we you used to we, asking me, Jeremy. We, we used to gather tribute and, and give it to the chap with the big bronze sword and nobody asked what the tribute was being given to. We now gather taxes and give them to committees. Well, the man who's in charge of the present state of nothing happening is, is Derek Parody. So I think any of our listeners interested in nominative determinism um, may make something of that. But it does seem as if Stone... I mean, has it, it's had, since the terrible visitor centre, it's had a new visitor centre by Denton Corker Marshall, the Australian architects. Delighting um, in its um, plurality of views uh, and fascinatingly um, exhibiting this in structure. Oh, good, here we have a monument that does actually speak for itself once you know the clue, um, in the fact that um, it was the big feature of it, that it could be taken down and made to disappear. So, so just now, as we, we have a, a tendency for, you know, every new theory on Stonehenge to be floated by an archaeologist who shrugs and kind of go, well, it's an interpretation. It may not last for 30 years, but, you know, total contrast to the, uh, the normative narratives that we began with. Um, in, in the same way, we, we have uh, a centre that acknowledges a certain pluralism, um, which acknowledges its ephemeralness. But interestingly, if we are reverting to some of the moral narratives we talked about, contains the remains of the dead on display with no apologies whatsoever. That is, of course, the current, uh, King Arthur's current campaign is to stop that. Um, and whether that succeeds or not, I think that the whole question of the display of the dead um, as museum objects is perhaps the next big question that Stonehenge is going to bring us around And Avebury as well, honouring the ancient dead, uh, asking, interestingly, having benefited from the pluralism, which was allowed... There's a little bit of a shrug about it. Even at his most gracious, Ronald Hutton has been known to write, well, some people believe one thing, some people believe another thing. Isn't it entertaining to turn up to the ceremonies? Um, in the same way, this has now become part of the narratives. Um, many people think different things about the stones. But with all morality, when it actually gets to action, uh, you reach the limits of what is plausible to believe. You cannot believe that people are objects. Jeremy, thank you very much. And as we end or complete the latest circle in this study of, of Stonehenge. I hope you've all enjoyed listening to it. It strikes me that we've come back in a way to where we began with John Aubrey saying that gunpowder and printing had frightened away Robin Hood and the fairies, and we've discovered that that's not really quite the case. So Stonehenge in the future. We wait and watch. <laughs>